The title of today's sermon is Change in Administrations, and it's taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 28. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that we may, so that it may not be ch- uh, changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. 
And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his place and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near to the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatsoever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones." Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he himself is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever." He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We're in the book of Daniel chapter 6, Daniel and the Lion's Den. Pray and ask God to guide and direct our thinking. Father, we thank you so much for this day, day to come. Give thanks to worship you, to honor you as our God and Savior. We ask now that you would use this text, Father, this ancient book written 2,500 years ago. Speak to us in our current status, our current lives, as we seek to walk in your steps as your disciples. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As you may know, the media has been very supportive of our new president-elect, Donald Trump. That was said with tongue firmly planted in cheek. Last week, the big news out of the lamestream media was Trump's transition team was in disarray. They attacked Trump for dismissing members of his transition team, while at the same time they dissed him for not picking certain members to be on his transition team. And if that wasn't alarming enough, we learned that Ivanka, his daughter, his lovely daughter, wore an very expensive bracelet from her own collection on her 60-minute interview. What terrible people they are. It was pictured as being brash capitalism. The truth is, there's been many times changes in administrations have been difficult, especially from one party to another. But our version of Pravda is bent on attacking anything this administration does or doesn't do. 
It didn't take long, for, however, for the Donald to push back against this negative press by tweeting, all was going smoothly, really smooth, smooth, I mean smoothly, smoother than you can example, than you can believe, smooth. Did I do a good Donald? Anyway. As hopefully you will recall, there was a change of administrations in Babylon taking place. Belshazzar is out and Darius is in. As you can see on the map behind me, hopefully, there we go. This was the Babylonian Empire. But now that the Medes and the Persians have taken over, this empire was greatly enlarged. The Persian Empire now included all of the Babylonian Empire. And, as you can see on those red lines, it was a landmass that ran from the northern Babylonian territories, which extended from Greece into Asia Minor, included all, the, all of modern-day Iraq and Iran, and went south into Africa, including even Egypt, all the way to the Oral Mountains. It was the largest empire that the world had ever seen. Obviously, there was a great need for an efficient management team to run this empire of this great size. You can take that map down now. A transition team was formed. It included many of the Medes, many of the Persians, and many of the administrations of those from the conquered lands, including Babylon. This brings us to the current state of Daniel's life. Now, most of us are familiar with this text that we're going to be looking at from Sunday school classes and from children's Bible books. This is the historical account of Daniel being put into the lion's den, and it is one of the most well-known and beloved stories from the scriptures. But have you ever stopped to compare and contrast these terrible events that have taken place in Daniel's life? I bet he did. Think about it. One night of Daniel is spent in a lion's den, now compare and contrast that and see how it pales against a whole life of 70 years serving pagan kings. It was probably more dangerous to serve the king and walk in the palace's halls than it was to be with a pack of lions. We see that dilemma in our own lives today as believers in Christ. We are in great danger whether you realize it or not. For we have been called upon to be sober, to be on the alert. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Wow. Have you ever thought of yourself as lion's dinner before? You see, the point here is that we live lives of danger, similar to that of Daniel. We have a great enemy that hates us and will persecute us, especially if we take our relationship, as Daniel did, with the Lord very seriously. We live in a proverbial lion's cage. The cage is the world, the roaring lion roaming about is the devil, and hopefully he will not eat us but we will be successful in living the Christian life. Now, you'll recall from chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar erected a statue that the people were supposed to worship. 
It was a figure that he had seen in his dreams given to him by God. This statue predicted four administration changes that would come upon the world. The golden head was set, as you know, to be Nebuchadnezzar. And that was to be followed after it is deposed. It would be replaced by the silver chest and arms, which we learn in this text is the media, the, the Medes and the Persians. So today we look at that, the succeeding administration, the succeeding world power that followed upon the defeat of the Babylonian Empire. All of this is described for us by Daniel and other biblical writers. It's called, even Jesus referred to it, as the time of the Gentiles. It's noteworthy that this event, Daniel in the lion's den, is given as much space in Daniel's book as the whole panoramic overview of world history, which we will see in chapter 7 next week. So we can say, I think rightly so, from the Lord's point of view, this event is of biblical proportions. Now before I get into the text, let me, let me share with you something that I see in the text, and I hope you will too. A literary te- technique that Daniel uses to help his readers see the point that he is making. He's using a chiasm, a chiastic structure or pattern in the text. He does this by reversing the order of the first and second parts of the text. You see this in the outline that is behind me on the screen. A, Daniel prospers. Daniel, make, Daniel makes a decree, or Darius makes a decree for Daniel's good. His jealous enemies set a trap. Darius traps the accusers. Darius makes a tragic decree, and Daniel is released. The point is that the writer is pointing to is this. Daniel's imprisonment in the lion's den, and Daniel's delivery by God. So this chiastic structure points to the very center of the text, or D, if you will. That is Daniel's imprisonment. You can take that down now. Daniel's imprisonment by man and Daniel's deliverance by God. Well, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me now to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 889 of the Pew Bible text. Last week, the Babylonians were defeated by the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar was killed, and Darius the Mede was installed as king. We learn more about this situation as Darius sets up his uh, his kingdom and his administration using members of the old regime. Looking at verse 1 now. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps, over the kingdom, and they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, that which we saw on the schematic, the, the, the map behind me. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and the king might not suffer loss. Here we learn that there is an unarticulated amount of time that passes between the setting up of this administration. It could have been a month, a week, six months, who knows, however long. But Darius organizes the whole kingdom under 124 administrators. Three of those were commissioners, and 120 of them were satraps. 
It's likely that 40 of those satraps served under each of the commissioners. Even though the empires had changed, we find that Daniel is still considered an important enough man to be one of the commissioners. His integrity, his honesty, his character rises to the top under Darius the Mede, and he is appointed to be one of the three men closest to the throne. This is a position of great authority. We read that it was for the purpose of accountability that this was done. Uh, The king apparently was suffering some kind of loss, according to verse 2, because he appointed these men so that he might not suffer loss. Well, we've just come through an election cycle in which one candidate accused another of corruption. The so-called pay-for-play scheme with the Clinton Global Initiative. This political scheming and money-making and trying to make Yourself a millionaire or billionaire off of the peoples is not unusual. It goes all the way back to the time of David. So back in this day, King Darius was afraid that his administrators were corrupt and were taking the taxes, funneling the taxes from the empire that had great needs to themselves. Now, some commentators, when they read this text, they miss the whole point. They focus on who is Darius and his identity. The truth is, we just don't know who this man Darius really is. But that's not the focus of the text. Who is this guy? The problem is, we don't find his name in other cuneiforms or other archaeological digs, at least not as of yet. Some have suggested that he might have been Darius and Cyrus all in the same. Darius would just have been another name for the king, the emperor, sort of like um, the Roman Empire used the, the word Caesar, the title Caesar. Some say that the Persian records tell us that the actual man who was running the kingdom was a Guburu, is his name. He was one of the generals under Cyrus and that he administered this land for the king. For the emperor? Well, there's a lot of speculation about who Darius was, but we're just going to let the text speak for itself. Darius the Mede is Darius the Mede, the master over the empire. Hopefully, future archaeological findings will shed more light on his identity. But we're not going to get bogged down in that. For in verse 3, we read that Daniel began distinguishing himself amongst the commissioners, the other two, and the 120 satraps, because because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king, the king planned to appoint him, Daniel, over the entire kingdom. Wow. Daniel was such an exceptional administrator that he was above all the others. Why? Because of his character and because of his experience. Remember, he had just finished serving Nebuchadnezzar for 39 years. We learn that Darius is planning to appoint him over all the others. Well, what do you think the result of that was? This, of course, would have caused great jealousy, friction with the other 122 members of the exclusive club. So let me ask you, have you ever experienced friction on the job? Maybe when you were promoted over others? Did people ever in the workplace get jealous of you because of your extraordinary work ethic and your Christian testimony? If not, 
If not, I hate to say it, but maybe it's because you're not serving Christ, but serving men. If you've suffered in this way, as Daniel is about to suffer, then you can commiserate with his experience. You see, if you perform above and beyond the expectations of all others, if you do an extraordinary job at the workplace, compared to all the other union members, you'll find yourself directly colliding with your co-workers. That was Daniel's experience. Verse 4, Then the commissioners and the satraps began to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. I guess he didn't start a 5013C for himself to enrich himself. Inasmuch as Daniel was faithful and no negligence or corruption was found to be in him. This is axiomatic. If you work hard, if you do what you're supposed to do and honor your boss in the workplace and he gives you a position of authority, you will find yourself in conflict with others. I don't care if it's in the church, in politics, in school, in the workplace, even in your own home. You will be scrutinized by others who have a jealous spirit. And if they uncover some flaw in you, the Achilles heel that you might possess, when they find it, they will use it as a way to bring accusation against you. Notice, the accusation that they do end up bringing against Daniel is really rather kind of silly. It's very vague. It's nonspecific. It could have been an accusation of corruption, negligence, dishonesty, false representation. But when they look for that accusation, they can't find one. They look at his life and they scrutinize every area of it and they find nothing. They find nothing in his work life. There were no flaws. So we read in verse 5, Therefore these men said to one another, We find nothing, no ground of accusation against Daniel, unless we might find it with him in regard to the law of his God. Oh yeah. He might not do anything wrong at work in the public area of his life, but he's a Jew. He's a Jew. Let's take a look at his religious life. Truth is, if someone wants to dig up dirt on your life, they're going to do it. They'll find something. All of us have skeletons in the closet, don't we? Now, I don't know about you, but I have a real skeleton in my closet. Uh, They'll look into your private lives and they'll try to find some issue as they give you the practiscope of your life to get rid of you. And what's this all driven by? Jealousy. Jealousy of his new position. He was going to be the main advisor to the king, and they didn't like that, that this Jew would be promoted to top dog. They resented him, not only because of his efficiency, but because of his religion. So they came up with this idea of looking at the Mosaic Law and trying to use that against him. We see here that this is definitely a group effort. Notice in verse 6. 
These commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and they spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. These are the one percenters. These are the elites of the society and they're jealous. So they get together over there at Starbucks and they make a plan to bring Daniel down. They're going to put this Jew in his place And that ain't in the palace. He should be out there working in the fields, not telling us what to do. So they ask for an audience with the king. And the king grants them one. They come in and they use the normal everyday greeting. Oh, king, live forever. I always laugh at that, don't you? Everyone knows that no one lives forever. Death is the only logical outcome for every human life. As the old saying goes, there are only two things certain, right? Death and taxes. Well, we hear their request in verse 7. Now notice the very first word. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors, we've all consulted together and that the king should establish a statute and enforce this injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or besides man, besides you, O king, for 30 days they should be cast into the lion's den. They begin with a damnable lie, really. They assert that everyone, all, they use the word all, of the 103 administrators are on the same page, even all the way down to the governors. It's quite obvious that all do not Agree, since Daniel was not there. He wasn't included in their little plan. The king likely had assumed that Daniel was probably on board with their request. Or maybe he didn't even notice Daniel's absence. I personally believe that Darius was basically a good man, but like all men, he has his vulnerabilities. You and I have our weaknesses. His weakness was pride. He was susceptible to the flattery of Men, And these men have profiled the king. They know everything about him. And so they will use this flattery against him. They suggest that those who are living in his kingdom honor him with their prayer requests. Well, this thrilled Darius. And besides, this would only go on for one month, so he couldn't really see any harm in it. It wouldn't be long-lasting. He probably thought it would do the people good to think of him as a god, or as someone who answered their prayers. Or some commentators have suggested that there might have been a particular issue going on in the kingdom at this time, dealing with religion or politics that would have been resolved by this. Who knows? But these men are very shrewd, and they flatter the king. They butter him up to get him to do what they want. Uh, By the way, Sue knows how to get what she wants from me. She knows how to flatter and butter me up and, you know. So they insisted that he should authorize this new law which would make him, the king, the sole object of worship in the kingdom for 30 days. The prayers of the subject should be addressed to Darius, the great one. O king, live forever. Well... There's always a problem, isn't there, when the state tries to start inserting itself into the religious area of people's lives. Things start to go amok. If you hold a Christian belief system, you are at odds with the world system. 
So then, say you work as a baker or a florist, and you have a conscience that says you don't want to make something that glorifies a sinful behavior or lifestyle. Well, in a free society, a democratic republic, its citizens are supposed to be allowed to refuse to do such actions according to their conscience. We are to disagree with others, but not seek to strong-arm others through the power of the government. This is where ideology put into the hands of an elite of progressives can bring about the personal destruction of others, even death. Now, most of us who have got a little gray hair have lived long enough to see this in practical terms. We've seen it in our lifestyle, where masses of people are literally killed by those with an ideological bent. How many of us can ever forget Nazism, socialism, and communism? All totalitarian forms of government want to tell you how your conscience should be expressed. In the past 100 years, we've seen the Nazi Holocaust, the gulags of Stalin, the Russian czars in in their programs, and the killing fields in Cambodia, just to name a few. The law, as a legal instrument, can bring about draconian penalties against innocent people for just holding beliefs that go against the elites of society. And to rebel against the elites is seen as evil. King Darius, no doubt, was flattered by the adulation that he would receive And he never, ever gave any thought to the consequences of it, especially to someone who was very close to him. So he, without thinking, consents to this silly scheme, and he signs it into law. And he did so according to the customs of the Medes and the Persians. All laws signed by the king were irrevocable. Look at me with verse 8. Now, O king, O king, establish the injunction. This is the satrap speaking. And sign the document so it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. These ideologues were super prepared in their scheme. They knew the nuclear option, didn't they? They had all their I's and all their T's crossed before they ever entered into the king's presence. They didn't have to go off into a little room and design this law and go over it and go over it so that the wording was all correct. They had it ready for his signature. No time for thought. These men were really shrewd. Verse 9, therefore the king signed the document. That is the injunction. The king, remember, Darius was a neophyte. He hadn't been king very long. They got the best of him. If he had only waited, if he had only consulted his number one man, Daniel, this never would have taken place. So he signs the decree without considering its possible effects on others. And that should be a lesson for us all. Don't do things without thinking. Don't sign legal documents without thinking. Right, Carol? You might regret such choices in the future. Look beyond today and try to see what consequences might result from your choices. 
All of this took place, by the way, all out in the open. It wasn't in the dark in some smoke-filled rooms, but it was in the king's royal palace for all to hear and see. It was proclaimed to all the people. And in verse 10, we see that Daniel's choice when he found out that the document was signed. Verse 10 shows us Daniel's choice as he finds out what happened. He entered into his house. He goes up to his roof, roof chamber. The windows are open and he prays towards Jerusalem on his knees. And he continues to pray three times a day, praying and giving thanks to God as he had always done before. He didn't make any attempt to hide his devotional life. He showed to everyone that his total dependence was on the Lord by continuing his practice of meeting with the Lord three times a day. The decree of King Darius did not change his practice. In fact, he threw the windows open so that all could see. He was kneeling. Now, he could have avoided all of this. He could have reasonably made some choices that would have kept what happens from happening. Since the decree was for only 30 days, Daniel could have stopped praying for that month. Have you ever stopped praying for a month? (laughs) Not hard. He could have justified that by not praying to the king, he he could avoid violating the Mosaic law against idolatry. By not praying for a month, he could have not broken the king's law. Or Daniel could have reasoned that since his life was at stake, certainly God wouldn't have mind that he had a prayerless month. But Daniel refused to take the easy way out. So when he heard about the law, the obvious plot to get him, he remained calm. And he continued his normal practices of life. If Daniel had been weak in the faith, a man of little courage, he could have compromised on his convictions, as I have suggested. He could have grabbed onto any old excuse to save his life to stop his devotional life for a month. He could have closed the blinds. He could have prayed silently to himself down in the basement. He could have left the city and gone away on business and continued his prayer life there. But that would have all been done out of unbelief and cowardice. He would have been no better than the accusers because he would have been reduced to scheming. There was no way that a man like Daniel would ever do such a thing. He feared the Lord and not men. All he had to do was remember, didn't the Lord help him through his training? Through all of those incidents with the three Hebrew boys? Didn't the Lord save him by interpreting the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar? He knew that he must obey God rather than men. Verse 11 tells us that these men came by agreement and they found Daniel. They looked up into his house and they found Daniel making petition and his supplications to the Lord. We've got him! There he is! Someone get your camera, take a picture of him on your phone! They colluded together, and they were going to bring Daniel down, and this was their opportunity to do so. The king signed that silly law all for this, to catch Daniel red-handed praying. And now it was time to cash in. 
They had to do this as a group. Notice, these men came by agreement. They had to do this as a group. You know, people will do things in groups that they will never do as an individual. For some reason, when you're with a bunch of other people, you act like a coward rather than standing for that which is right. Now they go to the king and they stoop to using intimidation tactics with the king himself. In verse 12, then they approached and they spoke to the king about the king's injunction. Didn't you sign a law, an injunction, that makes praying or petitioning to any other god but you, O king, for 30 days, that they shall be cast into the lion's den? Didn't you sign that? And the king replied, Yeah. Yeah, that statement's true. According to, the leads in, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which I signed, it may not be revoked. Hey, Darius, remember that law we coerced you into signing? Yeah, that one which calls for the death penalty for Daniel? Because we've seen him praying. Oh, yeah, Darius says. That kind of rings a bell. <laughs> it's interesting that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was never questioned by his underlings. He was above the law. Do you remember? He had the right of life and death over others. But the power of the kingdoms has diminished as now Darius the Mede is bound by the law. He can't do whatever he wants. Once he signs a law into law, it cannot be changed. He's caught proverbially between the rock and the hard place. He's bound by his own degree, decree, and it gets very personal here. As they say to the king, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Remember Daniel? Daniel? Yeah. One of those dirty Jews, the exiles from Judah. He pays no attention to you, king, and to your laws. But he keeps making prayers to his God three times a day. That's what they're saying here. They'd spied on Daniel when they saw him praying. They hurried as quick as the little legs could possibly carry them. They went to the king, tripping over one another. And they said to him, your favorite administrator, Daniel, he's broken the law. What are you going to do about it? Daniel's violated the decree that you put up, your little pet. It amazes me how people with competing agendas can come together to do evil things. How do the Muslims and the liberals come together to accomplish evil deeds? I don't know, do you? Yet it wasn't too difficult for these guys to do that. As the psalmist puts it, their feet were swift to shed blood. The amazing thing is that they had no respect for anyone, not even King Darius. They had no respect for no one. They they condemned Daniel as an exile from Judah. So, the king was in a hard place. What was he going to do? Daniel did openly defy the king. He did break the law. He continued his normal practice of devotions, which he had been practicing for almost 70 years. While a decree might be lawful, that does not make it right in the eyes of God. All laws are not lawful. 
Many godly men in history have faced similar dilemmas and unpleasant consequences as well. For a believer, these two things must be held in tension. On one hand, we are subject to the governing authorities, as we read in Romans 1. But on the other hand, we must obey God rather than man. The difficulty for us, the difficulty is distinguishing between these two and making the proper choice. To stand up for what you believe or to be bullied by the government. Well, Daniel had faith and he had courage. He had courage. And he did what was right. Now we're going to see the king, King Darius, is going to have one of those aha moments in life. Have you ever had an aha moment where the bells went off and the the, uh, lights blinked? He senses now what's going on. Oh, (laughs) I get it. That's what you guys were up to. I see what you were doing now. And my pride has gotten the best of me. Verse 14, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed. And he set his mind on delivering Daniel even until sunset. He kept exerting himself to rescue him. Darius realizes he's been tricked. And he's going to spend all day trying to find a loophole in his own laws to save Daniel's life. He's clearly distressed over this situation. Daniel was his friend, was his confidant. He was the only one that he could trust in his whole administration. And now he's going to have to sign the death warrant for his own friend. Maybe he was distressed over his own ignorance, his own silly behavior. His pride had gotten the best of him. Now we see Daniel's fate beginning in verse 15. These men came by agreement, got to be in the group to do it, to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, no, O live forever here, recognize, O king, that it is a, it is a law of the Medes and Persians that No injunction or statute with the king establishes may be changed. You can't undo this, king. We've got you. It's too late to save your little pet Daniel. He's toast. He's done for. Let's put the sentence into practice. Let it be carried out. Well, the king knew he was bound by his own decree. He'd hoped for a miracle but could not find one. So alas, there was no way around it. The king himself could not stand in the way. Heartbroken, we read in verse 16, the king gave orders. The king gave orders that Daniel be brought and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke, and he said to Daniel, Your God, your God, Daniel, whom you've constantly served, he will certainly save you. Wow. This is a pagan king. Telling Daniel that his God will save him if it be his will. Why was Daniel in here? Why was he in the lion's den? Because the king caved into the pressure that he was under. I find it interesting that no text records any prayer by Daniel here. He doesn't plead with God to save his life or to release him. Why is that? Well, Daniel knew God was at work. He could trust him. He put his life 
into his hands. He'd lived 80 plus years following the Lord. Why should he change now? Just because circumstances were dire. Could God overrule the changeless laws of the Medes and the Perds? Well, we're going to find out. But it's something that no human king could do. The king tells Daniel that your God, whom you've constantly served, himself, he will deliver you. Well, let's see. So Daniel's lowered into the pit, an underground cave with an opening at the top. That's to let the air in and drop down the food to the hungry lions. And the king walked off the top and down probably to a side window, and he looks in, and he speaks these words of encouragement to Daniel. Now in verse 17, we read that a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den of the cave, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the signet rings of all his nobles, so that nothing could be changed in regard to Daniel. The king couldn't send his men at night to save Daniel out of the pit. Much like the tomb of Jesus, the mouth of the den is closed and sealed with a stone and a signet ring. The king puts his authority on this, The lions are about to be fed. Daniel's a dead man. And all of the satraps and all of the advisors, they looked at one another and gleefully, with a sparkle in their eye, said, let's party like it's 800 B.C. I find the distinctions and the contrasts being made here by the author Daniel are eye-opening. While the plotters planned his death by working feverishly, scheming behind the scenes to accomplish their goal, here was the king scheming day and night, trying to find a way to get away from his own law that he had signed. But then there was Daniel. In contrast to that was Daniel, the life of the godly Daniel, a man of faith and integrity who just kept on practicing his daily devotions. He met with the Lord three times a day, says the text. We assume that's morning, noon, and night. He spoke with the Lord openly as they conspired against him. And the result is blessing? Reward? No. Being cast into a lion's den. Into the midst of some hungry lions. Can you imagine that? I can't. So he's in the den, and what happens? The king, according to verse 18, went off to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. No entertainment. And his sleep fled from him. I bet Daniel was probably in the lion's den, sleeping away, snoring. But the king's so agitated over what's happened, he can't even watch TV. He can't eat. He's probably laying on his bed, not being able to sleep, thinking, what have I done? I'm such a fool. I wish the morning would get here. I wish we didn't have daylight savings time tonight. I should change that law. Oh, stop thinking that way. That's what got us in this place. Verse 19, the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. Darius hurries down to the place of the execution. It's first light. And when he came near the den... To Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice, Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lion's den? 
and he listens for the voice of Daniel. Do you think Darius really believed that God could save his friend and servant Daniel? His voice quivers as he speaks. Just like many people's voices were quivering last week, did Donald Trump really win? That can't be. But out of the pit came the voice of Daniel. Daniel yelled up to the king, O king, live forever! My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of lions. And they haven't harmed me, not one bit. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also towards you, O king, for I have committed no crime. As I've mentioned several times before, Daniel never used this greeting to the king, live forever, but he does here. Why? I think it's he's just so grateful to be alive. It underscores that fact. It's as though Daniel is saying to the king, oh, king, did you have a good night? (laughs) Did you sleep well? I did. Daniel testifies to to the king about his lord here. Daniel testifies to the king about his Lord. He says, my God, my God, my God, sent his angel and shut the mouths of lions. That's something no idol made of stone or marble or gold could do. It's amazing what took place in this den on this night. Daniel's in the penalty box, and an angel comes down and releases him to get back into the game, to score a goal. He's saved from the mouths of the lions. Perhaps this angel is the same being that was walking about in the fiery furnace. Tell you the truth, I don't know. Is this an angel, or is this a theophany? Is this the Lord Jesus himself? in the presence of Daniel. What I do know is that the lions did not eat Daniel. Why? Because the Lord had found Daniel blameless, innocent. He was innocent in God's eyes, as we read in verse 13. This pleased. This pleased the king very, very much. And he gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was lifted up out of the den, and no injury could be found on him. There was no smell of smoke, remember? There's not one little scratch. Not even on Daniel's lenses of his glasses. Why? 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 Because he trusted in his God. In his reply to the king, in his testimony before the king, Yahweh, the living God, was able to save him. The implication here is that God is the one who saves and rewards those who trust in him. Daniel trusted in the living God. Praise the Lord. His trust wasn't in the king or in men or in armies. It was in the living God. And he was innocent. He was blameless because of this trust in God. In the book of Hebrews, which we're studying on Thursday nights, there's a chapter that's often called the Believer's Hall of Fame. And we are reminded there in chapter 11 and verse 30. Three about Daniel. It says there, by faith men conquered kingdoms. By faith men performed acts of righteousness. By faith men obtained promises. By faith the mouths of lions 
were shut. This experience of Darius showed the validity of Daniel's faith in Yahweh. He personally saw the sovereignty of God and the power of God in human circumstances. God physically delivered Daniel because of his trust in him and him alone. You know, the world has a dirty little ditty about payback. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not going to say it here. But here we read about payback from the king in verse 24. This has caused a lot of consternation, especially amongst the unbelieving world. It says, The king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, and here it is, their children and their wives into the lion's den. They didn't even hit rock bottom before the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Wow. Ooh, pretty awful, don't you think? So did they throw all 122 administrators into the den? I think not. I doubt that for several reasons. First of all, just a very practical one. The lions would have been stuffed after a few. (laughs) Don't you think? Oh, I can't eat another one. Secondly... I would have assumed, though text doesn't say it, I would have assumed that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abungalow were among the 122 of those servants of the king. Now, that's just my conjecture. But there must have been some kind of good guys amongst those 122. So I believe that these were the ringleaders that were tossed into the lion's den. Now, some might object to that, and that's okay. They would argue, however... The lost and the world would argue that God would never allow this to happen. A loving God would never kill women and children in this manner. I gotta, I gotta say, it's 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 a horrible thing. But we live in a different age. These were ancient times, vastly different from ours. Persian law called for the punishment of evildoers in such manner. Now. This kind of barbarity was common throughout the ancient world. It's not without parallel in our own. Just turn on the news and read about ISIS. But the Lord often called down divine judgment in similar ways on the wicked. On the wicked. For example, in Numbers chapter 16, we read of the judgment of God which befalls Dathan, Abram, and Korah. They sinned so grievously that the Lord had them and their families swallowed up by an earthquake. The punishment fit the crime. There's a principle in law called lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. We commonly know this from the scriptures as an eye for an eye. How tragic it is, though, when children must suffer the awful penalty of the sin of their parents. Whatever we feel about this law of retribution in ancient times, it fell on those who had falsely accused Daniel and wanted to see his life taken. This punishment is stated here, recorded as a fact, without approval or disapproval. But as I said, the Persians were known for their execution of the relatives of men who committed capital offenses. 
The reason for this is very pragmatic, if you will. It would prevent any kind of an assassination attempt on the king by a disgruntled relative in future years. So the kings acted, this king acted in accord with the practices of the day. Now, many times families are included, as I said, in the punishment of crimes. Whole families are wiped out by kings of Israel of others pretenders to the throne. This was to preserve, not only to preserve their physical life, but their legacy as well, their children ruling in their place. If a whole family is gone, they cannot come in and claim the position uh, of the family that the king, that has now trans, has gone down through the family line. We should also remember that the Lord Jesus himself suffered this kind of tragedy in his life. He suffered and died for something that he did not do in the place of guilty men. He died for the unjust, not for the just. There's an Old Testament principle that's embedded within the text known as the law of compensation. And that plays into this as well. We find it uh, written for us by Solomon in the book of Proverbs when he says this, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. There are many examples of this in Scripture. Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew babies to be thrown into the river Nile. And at Passover, the Egyptian firstborn all died. Pharaoh ordered these Jewish babies to be drowned, but his own men drowned in the Red Sea. Haman, evil Haman, schemed to eradicate the Jewish nation or the Jewish remnant, but it was Haman who ended up hanging on the gallows that had built for Mordecai. Today, sinners are not judged in their present lives. They will be judged in the life to come. So the law of just compensation works in this fashion as well. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, it's appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. While it certainly seems cruel to us in our modern, sophisticated world in which we live that destroying the families of the guilty parties is not right, that's just the way it was. So, the law of the Medes dictated that this should take place, and it does. We should remember that these conspirators certainly knew these laws. Just as Daniel had to go into the lion's den, the law of just compensation required that they too be thrown into it once Daniel survived. Now, we see Darius's testimony. We heard Daniel's. Now we hear Darius's testimony in light of what he has just experienced. He is a changed man. And he puts it in writing. You'll recall Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing after God worked in his life back in chapter 2 and 3. Well, in verse 25, Darius the king wrote to all the peoples of the nations and of men of every language who were living in all the land, make peace, make your peace abound. That would later on become the greetings of the Jews in the early church. May peace be yours, peace be with you. Darius has been truly affected by this experience. I make a decree, he says, that all in the dominion of my kingdom are to fear and tremble before Yahweh, the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, not a dead one, not a stone idol or a wood idol. And he endures forever in his kingdom in which 
will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. Holy cow. Can you imagine this? Praise the Lord is right. This goes way beyond anything Nebuchadnezzar ever confessed. Darius gives testimony to the work of God. And he decrees it that the God of the Jews, the God of Daniel, Yahweh is the living God. That is awesome. Why? Because God saved. He physically delivered his servant from danger and death. Daniel's God is to be feared and awed and worshipped because I've never seen any God of ours that could do that. Only a living God could do it. Verse 27, he delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. What do idols up on my little mantle do made of stone and wood and marble do? Nothing. They just sit there and look dumb, silent. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't feel. But Daniel's God who delivered him from the power of the lions. There it is. There it is. This experience changed his life because he learned that God, the living God, rescues and saves and delivers. And he sent this out as a decree to all the world. He commands his subjects to show reverence to the God of the Jews. Now, you'll recall, this contrasts greatly with his first decree. He decreed that the people make their prayers to him and worship him for 30 days. But now he sends out this second decree and says, hey, I've been wrong. The living God is the one who should worship, you should worship the God of the Jews. Why? Because he can rescue and save. Pretty eye-opening and challenging to the people of Babylon to contemplate the king of a defeated nation. And remember, when a nation was defeated, that was like defeating their gods. Here, the king of their own world, their own nation, their own empire, saying to them, it is the God, defeated God of the Jews, who is living and great and saves. Now, verse 28. So Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Clearly, Darius the Mede is distinguished here from Darius the Persian. But what we are told here is that Daniel prospers. He enjoys success. He's rewarded for his faithful service and trust in God. So what can we learn from this text today? What can we apply to our lives today? Well, I think, first of all, we can follow the example set forth by Daniel. We can be honest in all of our dealings. We can work hard for our employer to honor our Lord. We can do a good job, and if a promotion should come our way, we should not expect others to be happy about it for us. Some will be jealous. Some will even try to undermine us. But if that does happen, we can just keep on trusting God and worshiping him as Daniel did. Secondly, we must obey the laws of our government unless... They conflict with the laws of God. No government has the right to tell you to stop praying to your God. And we're commanded to do so. Pray without ceasing in the word of God. In Daniel's case, it involved prayer. In a case that you might run up against in the future, it might be something else. We have no certainty in our future, do we? However... We need to make the decision here and now to always obey our 
God and do what is right. So, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you to pray and do so publicly. What did Daniel do? Did he close the windows? Did he go down to the basement to pray? He threw open the windows for everyone to see. He was on the top floor of his house and said, look at me, basically, as he prayed towards Jerusalem. Give public testimony to what God has done for you and your life. After all, he saved you. He's delivered you. And he loves you. Would you bow with prayer, in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the book of Daniel. It's more than just some little kid's story about getting out of a den of lions. It's about God working in the life of a man in the nation of Israel. Help us, Lord, to see that you still do so today. Help us to trust in you unashamedly. Help us to be men and women, not only privately, but publicly who proclaim Jesus Christ has saved me. We ask this in his name. Amen.